0: Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
1: CBS News face the nation
2: in 60 seconds.
3: Geico presents unhelpful home improvement how to's.
2: Overhanging trees present a real danger. During high winds, falling branches can damage roofs and windows. So today, I'll show you how to protect your home by wrapping it in bubble packaging. All you need is a staple gun and 142,000 feet of bubble packaging. Let's get started.
3: You could try to protect your home with bubble packaging, or you could get covered for personal property damage through the GEICO Insurance Agency. Call GEICO and see how affordable homeowners' insurance can be.
4: Today on Face the Nation, President Trump turns tradition upside down again, agreeing to meet face-to-face with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un to discuss denuclearization. If it happens, he'll be the first sitting U.S. president to meet with a North Korean leader. So I think
5: North Korea is going
3: to go very well. They promised they wouldn't be shooting off missiles in the meantime, and they're looking to continue.
4: Despite the diplomatic coup for President Trump, skeptics are concerned it will end up being a propaganda victory for Kim's rogue regime. We'll speak with CIA Director Mike Pompeo about the risks, conditions for the summit, and the state of North Korea's nuclear program. The diplomatic gamble and some concessions on the part of the president towards U.S. allies a potential international trade war.
5: A lot of steel mills are now opening up because of what I did, steel is back and aluminum is back.
4: But some Republicans in Congress fear the tariffs will hurt American manufacturers and farmers and vowed to fight the president. We'll talk with Colorado Republican Senator Cory Gardner about that and get his reaction to the news on North Korea. CBS News correspondent Holly Williams will report from South Korea about the silence from Kim Jong Un since the announcement in Washington. We'll discuss the developing diplomatic situation with a special panel of experts and have plenty of analysis on the week's political news. It's coming up now on Face the Nation. Good morning, and welcome to Face the Nation. I'm Margaret Brennan. Since he accepted North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's invitation to meet, President Trump has been publicly optimistic and had kind words about a regime he's harshly criticized.
5: South Korea came to my office after having gone to North Korea and seeing Kim Jong-un. And now it's very positive No. After the meeting, you may do that, but now we have to be very nice. I think they want to do something. I think they want to make peace. I think it's time.
4: But there are many questions about the risk of such direct talks and what conditions must be met before the two leaders sit down. To get some insight, we turn now to CIA Director Mike Pompeo. Director, welcome to the show. It's been three days since the president accepted this invitation. Has North Korea responded?
2: Well, Margaret, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I think it's important to step back to figure out how we got here for uh, two decades. America whistled past the graveyard and allowed the north Korean, re- Korean regime to build up the capacity that this administration faced when it came into office.
4: You said still a few months away from being able to hit the u s mainland uh, with weapons? That, that's weapon?
2: right they uh, They have made tremendous progress over these years. Uh, President Trump uh, took a different tact entirely, put an enormous global allies support, ally supported pressure campaign on the North Koreans that has had a real impact on the regime, on the North Korean economy, uh, and has caused Kim Jong-un to reach out and say that he wants to begin to have discussions on terms that the United States has never achieved before. That's where we find ourselves today, and uh, we're going to work hard to make sure that we get what it is the president has set out very clearly for his entire time in office, which is the complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization of North Korea.
4: Are we in direct contact with North Korea?
2: I think Secretary Tillerson has said that there are channels open.
4: but We haven't heard back whether Kim will accept what the president has said is his willingness to meet as soon as may.
2: I don't want to get into the conversations that may or may not be taking place. The president um, has indicated he's prepared to go have an initial discussion on this incredibly important topic, and we're preparing for that time.
4: Now, the president accepted this invitation fairly quickly on the promise, as you gestured to, of a pause in missile and nuclear tests. Why not ask for more? Why not ask for an actual freeze of their program so they don't use diplomacy as a cover to continue development?
2: Well, this we, we've gotten more than any previous administration. Uh, an agreement to uh, not continue testing uh, nuclear weapons and their missile program, the things that would put them capable of getting across the threshold. That's critical. They've, he's allowed to continue us to continue our exercises on the peninsula, something that's been pot over for decades, uh, and at the same time, he has agreed to have a conversation about denuclearization. In the end, Margaret, what will turn out is not about words and what someone says. This administration has its eyes wide open, and the whole time this conversation takes place, the pressure will continue to mount on North Korea. There is no relief in sight until the president gets the objective that he has set forth consistently during his entire time in office.
4: So you're saying more sanctions, but in the meantime, North Korea can continue its enrichment, its computer modeling, things that would allow it to enrich and develop its nuclear program.
2: Well, I don't want to comment on that specifically, but be sure. Well, they haven't pledged not to. Be sure that's happening today. (laughs) Be be sure that's happening today. And so our, our our our, our, our efforts are to put pressure on them, to prevent them from having financial resources to continue to build out these programs. We've been very effective at these things. None of that's going to change while we prepare to have a set of talks between the two people who can make these important decisions.
4: Are you open to meeting with your North Korean counterpart?
2: Uh, I'll I'll leave how these discussions uh, proceed to the President of the United States. He'll set the course and tone for the direction. Um, But I had a chance this weekend to read the histories, the CIA's histories of our involvement in the previous failed negotiations. Uh, You can be sure that the CIA won't make those mistakes again. We will be at the center of providing the intelligence picture to the President and to the Secretary of State so that each of them can understand how it is we can most likely achieve the President's objective.
4: When I spoke to Secretary of State Rex Tillerson last month on 60 Minutes, uh, he described what he said was a plan for talks. Let's listen to that.
6: We do have a plan for negotiations. We have an end state for that. It is a very, it's a very stepwise process. We're not going to just leap from where we are today to denuclearization. We understand this is something that will have to be done through through various steps to eventually achieve that final objective of denuclearization, and that'll come through a lot of negotiation, a lot of difficult talks. What we have to determine now is, are we even ready to start? Are they ready to start?
4: Tillerson said this will be done through him. Is that still the plan?
2: Look, this is a level of discussion. The president is going to drive this effort, this negotiation. Um, But it will take a team uh, to build out the picture so that we put the president in the best position so that he can achieve that outcome. Because Uh, it's
4: unclear, though, if it's the State Department or your agency that will take the lead. It was your counterpart from South Korea who was at the White House this week.
2: I I don't think there's any doubt about who's going to take the lead on this. The president of the United States is going to take the lead. So the first meeting will be that presidential summit? The president of the United States is going to take the lead in resolving this important conflict with North Korea.
4: But in terms of laying the groundwork, you can't send your president into that meeting without making sure that you give him the best tools possible. Will you take those first meetings? Will the secretary take those first meetings? How do you lay the groundwork for success?
2: Margaret, I'm not going to talk about how the negotiations will proceed on this Sunday show. Rest assured, when the president enters that room with Kim Jong-un, if if Kim Jong-un lives up to the four commitments that he has made, those four major concessions, the president will be fully prepared for his conversation with Kim Jong-un.
4: In terms of the goal here, uh, when you were in Congress, you were harshly critical of the nuclear deal with Iran that the Obama administration negotiated. And there are obviously flaws that even they recognize there. But the Iranians did give up the vast majority of their nuclear fuel and their production facilities aren't functioning. Have you set a higher benchmark for these talks since North Korea is farther along with its nuclear program?
2: Yes, Margaret, I think that's the case. Most importantly, the conditions are very different. Uh, The previous administration was negotiating from a position of weakness. This administration will be negotiating from a position of enormous strength with sanctions that are unrivaled against the North Korean regime. Uh, That that conversation will proceed very differently. Uh, My critique of the Obama administration's JCPOA commitment was that they left the Iranians with a breakout capacity. They had a short time frame that these would, uh, these restrictions would remain in place. And North Korea's human capital and enrichment capacity continues to remain in place. Those are, those are all things that uh, present risk to the world. And President Obama is, excuse me, President Trump is, is determined to prevent that from happening in North Korea.
4: So you look at that deal and say, that's, that's a starting point, or that's at least what we can reach, if not go beyond that with North Korea. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Well, North Korea, as we've said, is further along in its program. You said a few months away from being able to hit the U.S. mainland in January. How much farther have they progressed since January?
2: I I don't want to get any any details on that. Suffice it to say, I think a few months is still a fair characterization of where the regime sits today with with respect to their capacity to reach the United States. I
4: want to quickly ask you about Syria, but before I do that, can you tell us anything about those three Americans who are still in captivity in North Korea?
2: Uh, No, ma'am, I don't have anything to add to that. The State Department is handling those negotiations, and America does have as a priority getting the return of those three American citizens just as quickly as we can.
4: Uh, In Syria, there are now reports of napalm being used in addition to chlorine gas attacks just outside Damascus and East Ghouta. Why doesn't the president's red line on chemical weapons apply in these cases?
2: Margaret, the president's made very clear that he won't tolerate chemical weapons usage, and he has demonstrated his willingness to respond. Uh, In this case, the intelligence community is working diligently to verify what happened there. I've seen the pictures. You've seen the pictures as well. Uh, We have a higher standard to make sure we understand precisely what took place, precisely who did it, so that our response can meet the threat. Uh, And uh, we're working to develop that. We've seen these reports, and uh, the president asked me, nearly every day what it is the intelligence community knows about the Syrian regime's use of chemical weapons and who else, the Russians or the Iranians, who might be responsible for them.
4: So for you, it's a question of is it the regime or is it the Russians using the napalm and chlorine gas? Just to clarify.
2: We're still trying to figure out precisely what happened in each of these cases.
4: The Israelis, uh, including their prime minister, was here this week was warning that Iran is unchecked within Syria. Should the U.S. mission change to be able to counter Iran and its proxies like Hezbollah?
2: So I'll leave policy to others. Uh, what I can say about what's taking place inside of Syria is that the Iranians um, had a free pass in previ- the previ- previous administration. In fact, the JCPOA and the negotiations prevented a United States response that as they didn't want to the previous administration uh, Ben Rhodes and Obama's team didn't want to upset the apple cart uh, this administration has taken a much stronger approach uh, a much more aggressive posture with respect to countering Iran but that's we're not closely, now we're working closely and we're working closely with the Israelis to develop a full intelligence picture of what's taking place there so that the president has options to counter that threat.
4: So what I hear you saying is that the mission is not solely to counter ISIS. You are also looking at Iran and its proxies.
2: president's made very clear uh, we're working diligently to find the right approach to counter the incredible spread of Iranian hegemony throughout the Middle East.
4: Director, I have so much more to talk to you about, <laughs> but I'm out of time here. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you for coming on the show. It's great to hear directly from you. Thank you, ma'am. We're joined now by Colorado Senator Cory Gardner, a leading Republican voice in Congress on North Korea policy. And he joins us from his family's farm equipment business in Yuma, Colorado, which is, you got tractor parts behind you there, sir.
3: We got
1: a lot of stuff that I used to stock in here a long, long time ago. <laughs>
4: Uh, Well, I want to ask you, on the news uh, of the moment, you and uh, five other Republican senators sent a letter to the administration asking them to outline their North Korea strategy. You just heard the CIA director outline his thoughts here. Did you hear the strategy you were asking for?
1: Well, I think what I heard him say is, is right, that we have found ourselves in this position because of a maximum pressure doctrine, turning away from the failed doctrine of strategic patience, and are now really crippling what was left of the North Korean economy. But what we have to hear more of is how we are going to get to those concrete, verifiable steps uh, toward denuclearization before this meeting occurs. I've talked a lot about the diplomatic runway, the length we have left on the diplomatic runway, ways we can work with North Korea, work with China, who's enabled North Korea in many cases, uh, to make sure that we're putting maximum pressure on them. Uh, But we have to have those steps, those real concrete steps, before this meeting occurs. Because after this meeting, there's going to be very little left of that diplomatic runway.
4: Well, so those four steps that the director said uh, this administration has guaranteed that have gone farther than past administrations in his claim, those are not enough for you?
1: Well, if you go back to 1994 to the agreed framework, you go back to 2005, North Korea has made a lot of promises, and they have reneged on every single one of those promises. And so what we have to do is to, to assure that we're in a different position than we were back in 94, back in 2005, back in 2007. So you want a national freeze of the nuclear Look,
4: program before talks start?
1: Well, look, I'd like to see some concrete steps more than just a cessation of testing because uh, you can still do computer modeling. Look, the United States is making uh, advances every day on our nuclear program, and we're not testing nuclear missiles and nuclear weapons each day, but we're still making advancements. And so what we need to see is North Korea actually start living up to some of the agreements, the agreements that they have already made that they said they would uh, to the United States decades ago.
4: You are also one of about 100 Republicans who have urged the president to reconsider these tariffs on steel and aluminum he signed off on this week. Uh, He's not changing his mind. So what kind of legislative workaround are you proposing?
1: Well, we have some legislative uh, tools at our disposal. The question is, of course, how do we get that to uh, the president for his signature? Our founders set up a, uh, a system where the president has to agree with legislation that comes out of Congress. There are ways that we can narrow the framework that the president is using to uh, increase or, or levy those tariffs. There are things that we can do. But I think most importantly is this, a recognition that we agree on fair trade deals, that we agree that we want the United States treated in a way that we're treating other nations. And if we can do better, then we should do better. But I'm concerned that a, a tariff can result in a tax on the very same people that we're trying to help in this economy. That they could actually be hurt uh, instead of being helped by this action. So let's work and spend the next few weeks trying to figure out exactly how narrowly tailored these tariffs can be. Go after the bad actors. If that's China, then let's make sure that we hold them accountable and responsible. Uh, but I, I spoke with the CEO of uh, Everest Steel Mill in Colorado Uh, Conrad Winkler, we talked a little bit about just the the impact that uh, NAFTA would have on them if we were to withdraw, uh, doubled with the steel tariff. He's very grateful that Canada has been removed from the steel tariffs. Who else is going to be removed through this process? We'll wait and see. But I think there's a lot of conversations that we need to have with this White House to make sure that uh, the economic benefit uh, outweighs economic harm of such tariff actions.
4: Would you ask for a carve-out for countries that have a security relationship with the United States, like South Korea and Japan?
1: I think it's incredibly important that we have our allies standing with us, not just on the economy, but in security matters. And if you look at the North Korea situation, what South Korea is dealing with, what Japan is dealing with, and that's why a lot of the times when I talk about North Korea, I talk about the trilateral relationship between... Japan, South Korea, and the United States. This isn't just the United States alone. It's not just South Korea alone. This is a, an important relationship that we have to get right. Mm-hmm. So if, if Japan is cheating us, then let's let's get that fixed. But right now, what we ought to be focusing on is how we can get this right for the economy, open up new opportunities to trade, not fewer, let's hold the responsible actors like China responsible for their actions right. and not bring our friends into a way that could cause harm.
4: Last night at a Pennsylvania rally, President Trump said Ronald Reagan was not great on trade. Is the Republican agenda still pro-free trade?
1: You know, absolutely. There's so I think everyone in Congress agrees that opening up new markets is better for the United States. Do you disagree with the not president? not wrong when he says... The president's not wrong when he says that we need fair deals. If somebody's taking advantage of us, if if our markets are open and nobody is, and they're not paying tariffs to get into this country, but yet we turn around and have to pay tariffs to get into their country, then something's wrong with that. I think the American people understand that. But where we're going to get this wrong is if we start into a trade war that results in our allies penalizing us, increasing cost of consumer goods, making it more difficult for the American people to afford goods that they commonly buy at the grocery store. I'm particularly concerned about the impact this could have on agriculture because agriculture is really going to be in the front lines of any kind of uh, trade uh, retaliation that we see and I'm uh, in a a big ag state right here where most of our top ten exports are agriculture so uh, we have to get this right we have to narrowly tailor this to the bad actors Uh, I do believe that in general uh, tariffs are a tax on the American people uh, and the people who are going to be harmed by this are the very people who are who are trying to help so much that uh, the people who've struggled far too long over the past uh, decade that haven't seen a wage increase uh, in years
4: I want to quickly ask you about guns. Uh, Texas Senator John Cornyn has a bill proposing strengthening the background check system. Is it correct that you have put a hold on this?
1: Yeah, uh, I think there are some of us who are talking about due process issues in the bill and legislation. I've talked to Senator Cornyn, and I hope that Senator Cornyn will realize that we need uh, to work this due process matter out. Uh, this isn't an issue of whether you like this or not. It's a question of constitutional rights and protecting the people. So of this you country. are blocking the, uh, the bill them for from now. Harm. Uh, and, and making sure we're protecting people from harm and making sure that we get this right. And if there's a constitutional issue at, at stake, then that should be worked out.
4: But to clarify from your answer there, are you blocking this bill from the floor?
1: This bill can come to the floor, and we will continue to work through an amendment process, and I hope that we can fix those amendments.
4: After you fix this bill, you will allow it to go to the floor but not before this?
1: Well, I think that if we can have a, an amendment process that works to fix due process concerns, real constitutional issues then I hope that's something that we can do. I hope that uh, people who support this bill are interested, like all of us, in making sure we're protecting the American people from harm.
4: All right. Senator Gardner, thank you very much for joining Face the Nation. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Since Thursday's announcement about a meeting between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, there's been plenty of reaction here and from our allies. We turn now to CBS News foreign correspondent Holly Williams in Seoul, South Korea, some 35 miles from the North Korean border. Holly, what are you hearing over there?
6: Good morning, Margaret. What's bizarre is that the whole world is talking about this meeting between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, but we've had no direct confirmation of it from North Korea. It's been completely silent, at least in public. This has all come through South Korea. It began with a rare meeting between senior South Korean officials and Kim Jong-un in Pyongyang this past week. He gave them a message for President Trump, inviting him to meet. The South Koreans delivered it to the president personally. Kim
7: pledged that North Korea will refrain from any further nuclear or missile tests.
6: It's an extraordinary turn of events after a spate of North Korean missile tests last year, another nuclear test in September, and months of insults. Do Yeon Kim is an expert on North Korea and its nuclear program and says the North is eager to talk because economic sanctions are hurting the regime. It's not going to be easy because the North Koreans are very good negotiators and they know how to play the game. What is the game that they play? Get everything they want and give nothing in return. North Korea has also reneged on previous deals. Other sitting US presidents have decided against meeting with North Korean leaders and rewarding them with some legitimacy without getting concessions from them first. Is it possible that they're better negotiators than President Trump, who prides himself on being able to make a deal? The North Koreans have had 25 years of experience dealing with the Americans, uh, but in the States, the administrations change. That's what the North sees as America's strategic weakness changes in personnel, changes in
4: characters.
6: The key player in this region is China, perhaps the only country with the leverage to force North Korea to denuclearize. It's been tougher on enforcing sanctions recently, but for years, China has been North Korea's biggest trading partner and a
4: lifeline to the regime. Margaret. Holly, thanks. And we'll be back with our national security panel to talk more about this potentially historic development.
1: If you like this podcast, check out what other podcasts are available from CBS News Radio.
5: This is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett.
2: Every week, an extended conversation at a restaurant in our nation's capital with newsmakers like the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt.
8: The climate's changing. We contribute to it. I've said that a thousand times,
2: okay? Chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Tom Perez. That's what this president has always been about. He divides people. Samantha B, our very special guest. I think
9: I just realized my voice is really boring on podcasts. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> gonna... <laughs> Wee-
2: subscribe now for a new podcast every Friday morning. The Takeout with me, Major Garrett.
4: We're joined now by a panel of national security experts. Michael Morell is a former deputy CIA director and CBS News senior national security contributor. Jung Pak is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. She's worked at the CIA and the office of the director of national intelligence. And David Sanger is national security correspondent for The New York Times and a CNN contributor. Mike, what did you make of Director Pompeo's justification of these talks? So I
8: thought it was very interesting that both the director and Senator Gardner um, made it absolutely clear that the United States feels that we are coming to this from a position of strength because the sanctions have been tough, right? They have hurt. But what's interesting is I think that Kim Jong-un also feels that he's coming to this from a position of strength. He has nuclear weapons. He's demonstrated an ICBM capability. He hasn't demonstrated that he can put them together yet, but he also feels he's coming at this from a position of strength, sitting down with an, as an equal um, so, so I think that says something about expectations on both sides um, and whether they can be met or not.
4: You think this is a reward before anything's been given up?
8: So I think that, that, that North Korea in general, and Kim Jong-un in particular, put a very high value on being seen as meeting with the president of the United States. It gives him legitimacy both at home and abroad, It's very important to him. Um, he's gotten, he, he will get that if this happens. He's only given a short-term freeze in missile and nuclear tests, right? I think we could have gotten more for what he really wanted here.
4: Jung, I want to start with you. Do you think these talks will actually happen? North Korea has been silent since President Trump accepted the invitation.
7: Right. Um, I think that's an excellent point is that we haven't heard anything from North Korea that these talks have actually been offered or that any concessions or so-called concessions have been offered. Um, All of this is coming secondhand from the South Koreans who have an interest in making sure that the North Korea-U.S. talks happen. Um, So that said, you know, North Korea is keeping mum, and I'm not surprised about that, given um, that gives them maximum flexibility on their next moves. Um, And I'm sure that Kim is monitoring all the um, discussions and debate going on in Washington about whether or whether President Trump should have been, uh, have accepted this um, offer.
4: You think this was a bluff, possibly?
7: I don't, I don't know that if it was a bluff, but I can, I can see Kim Jong-un dangling the possibility of, of, or of its willingness to meet with the president, um, but then being surprised. So I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if, if we see some policy dysfunction from North Korea or a delayed reaction or response from North Korea as a result.
4: And David, you've covered this before. It's not the first time that an American president has been issued an invitation to Pyongyang or to meet with North Korean leader. It's the first time that we know of that they said yes, though.
5: That's Right. Well, uh, that's that's why I think it was so interesting when Director Pompeo said that uh, President Trump had already accomplished more than any past president. And I think on this, the director, with with all due respect, was probably just wrong. I mean, President Clinton reached an agreement in 1994 that lasted for about six years, but suspended all of their uh, production of nuclear material. Uh, the president was offered, President Clinton was offered a chance to go to North Korea to talk about missiles, and in the end he sent Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. That deal fell apart. Uh, president Bush uh, had two different uh, sets of agreements with the North Koreans. Both of those worked for a while, but then also fell apart. So it's a little early for, for a victory lap here. But I do think that the um, director set a very interesting uh, Barrier for President Trump uh, today when he said that this really has to be in response to your question stronger than the Iran deal, and in the, in the Iran deal. Let's remember what happened. The Iranians he was
4: a big critic of that deal.
5: He was a very big critic of that deal. The president's been a big critic of that deal. The Iranians gave up 97 percent of their nuclear material. They stopped running and dismantled some of their nuclear facilities. There are a lot of reasons to be critical of the fact that the agreement doesn't last forever. It begins, it expires starting in 10 years, and then pieces of it expire in 15 years. But the fact of the matter is, if you could get that out of North Korea, the president would be taking a very big victory lap.
4: It's, it's a pretty high benchmark to set, Mike.
8: Yeah, I think um, in terms of, 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 of Margaret thinking about what the, what the best outcomes would be here and the worst outcomes. I think the best outcome would be if they meet and they set, agree on a set of principles by which neg- negotiations would continue at a lower level. That was Secretary
4: right? of State Tillerson's proposal.
8: Exactly. I think that is the best outcome. The worst outcome, there's two of them, right? One of the worst outcomes is a breakdown, is that the meeting doesn't go well and they're sniping at each other afterwards because where do you go from then? Right? That's that's the danger here. The other the other worst outcome is if we take the pressure off in some way, and if we give some sort of sanctions relief for for something not very significant, right? Those are the two worst outcomes.
4: Jung, uh, one of the you know criticisms is that you do one of these presidential summits at the end, not the beginning of a negotiation. But then I've spoken to officials who said, look, Kim Jong Un's the only person worth negotiating with in North Korea because he's an absolute dictator. So. It's a unique policy, but is it the wrong approach?
7: Yeah. So um, I'll leave it up to the experts on po- the policymakers on the policy. But I think that because President Trump has already said yes to this meeting, um, if it happens, this meeting is too big to fail. Um, and I see multiple dimensions in of risk. Um, is if one, if Kim Jong Un and, D- and Donald Trump um, don't get along. Um, you heard Director Pompeo say, say that Donald Trump wants to resolve this issue. Michael Morrell, I think, has correctly um, identified the, Kim Jong-un's confidence. So you, if you have two uh, confident leaders coming to the table demanding things of each other, they're not going to get along. But the other side is that if they do get along and somehow uh, Donald Trump, Mr. Trump, is, thinks that he's getting a win from Kim Jong-un um, and that uh, we have this convergence of um, a, a U.S. president who is suspicious of alliances in general, um, that uh, he might be willing to trade away the alliance for some sort of win for the United States, um, such as no ICBMs, for example. Um, so there, there are ways of, there are different ways of risk, but I think uh, it's all in our interest for this meeting to succeed. The
4: ranks of the State Department are thin right now. That's well known. So who should be leading the negotiations
10: here?
7: I think it has to be somebody. Um, if it's not, if this person doesn't already isn't isn't already in position, it has to be a special envoy with the with the um, explicit um, confidence of the White House and the president himself to either run the advance team to make sure that uh, that Kim Jong Un actually said what he is reported to have said, um, and because to, this is all secondhand through the Koreans, right, and to manage the process after the fact, after the summit, if it happens, David. This is
4: all through the South Korean telling of what happened during this dinner four hour dinner in Pyongyang last week. I mean, is that it was certainly struck me as unusual to have a foreign official make this announcement of the president's schedule. How do you sort of digest what seems to be a decision without a policy process?
5: Well, first of all, that wouldn't be the first time in the Trump administration that we saw that happen. What you might have expected is that President Trump would have heard this, said, let's go back and confirm this, do some of the back-channel work that Secretary Tillerson has said he has developed with the North Koreans to confirm that the North Koreans are offering exactly what the South Koreans said they were offering, and then try to figure out the modality in which you do this. I think if you looked at the photographs that were taken in the Oval Office when the president was meeting the South Korean delegation, It seemed to me that uh, when he said he would go ahead and do this, he was surprising his secretary of defense and his national security advisor. Yes, pretty clearly. He he, accepted on the spot. And he certainly surprised uh, his secretary of state, who was traveling in Africa at the time. That gets you to the next big question on this, which is, has the president thought very much about what the United States is willing to give up in these negotiations? Because if we've learned anything from them, and Margaret, you and I covered the Iran negotiations for a long time, there's a lot the U.S. is going to have to go give here. If Kim Jong-un is actually willing to denuclearize, that may be worth a lot. But we also know that the North Koreans have made it very clear they never plan to denuclearize. And what they do plan to do, they say, is to be regarded as a nuclear power. So we'd have to think hard. Would we be willing to pull all of our troops out of South Korea? Would we be willing to stop all of the exercises that have gone on over the, over the years? That could get at this erosion of the of the um, alliance that uh, everybody's so worried about.
4: So the South Koreans, you would say, might need to be in the room. The Japanese, do they need to be in the room? Can this be just direct U.S. and North Korea? Do so I think
8: it, the negotiations, right, should include the South Koreans, the Japanese, the Chinese, the Russians? Right, they all need to be part of this. Um, it's very, very important to keep our alliance structure together, the South Koreans and the Japanese, not only because of North Korea, but because of China as well. I mean, here we have Japan, right, who got slapped twice this week, you know, on aluminum and steel once, and then on being surprised on, on, on this, this meeting between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. That is an extraordinarily important relationship. It has to be managed. It wasn't managed this week.
4: And the U.S. not only is hitting Japan with those tariffs, but possibly South Korea. And there's a free trade deal discussion that's not really going very far right now either, Jung. I mean, are there already cracks in this alliance?
7: Um, I think alliance management is pretty difficult to do. Um, and I think given the national priorities of both the United States and with South Korea, um, that there, there are bound to be cracks and fissures um, in, the, in the relationship. Um, that said, it doesn't look good when we're dealing with the North Korea situation um, and the president is talking about um, trade.
4: All right, We have to leave it there, but I'm sure we're going to be talking much more about this <laughs> over the coming months, particularly if we see that meeting in May. Uh, we'll be right back with our political panel.
8: Don't have time to keep up with the news? Try the CBS News Radio app on your iOS or Android device. You'll get the latest news as soon as you start it up. It's that easy. You can also listen to great programming, like Face the Nation, Weekend Roundup, or the CBS Evening News.
1: And good evening. Wall Street today signaled its approval of the tax cuts passed by the Republican-controlled Congress.
8: You can even download them straight to your phone and listen later. It's all on the CBS News Radio app for iOS or Android. Download it today.
4: And now for some political analysis. Michael Gershon is a Washington Post columnist and a contributor to The Atlantic. Molly Ball is a national political correspondent for Time magazine, and Susan Glasser is the chief international affairs columnist at Politico we'd like to welcome Shannon Pettypiece to the broadcast as well. She's a White House correspondent for Bloomberg News. Uh, Shannon, let's start off with you. The, The president softened a little bit on the trade wars this week, took Canada and Mexico off the hit list, at least for now when it comes to steel and aluminum tariffs. Is there actual wiggle room on this or is the policy decided?
11: I think there is wiggle room, and Republicans on Congress are doing everything they can to wiggle as much within that room as possible. A very strong language coming out from even some of Trump's uh, most consistent defenders, Orrin Hatch, saying uh, he doesn't think these tariffs are a good idea. Uh, Senator Jeff Flake is getting ready to introduce some legislation that would nullify these. And it's possible they would have enough votes with Democrats, enough Democrats on board. This could be one of the rare moments where uh, Democrats and Republicans can come Together because they see the economic consequences of this being so catastrophic for parts of the economy. To override a presidential veto? Possibly, yes. We were asking people about that. I mean, there are some Democrats in the Rust Belt, the Tim Ryans of the world, who, you know, do. You know, support the steel industry and see that as a big area. I don't know specifically uh, his position on this, but in that, in those sort of Rust Belt areas. But a lot of other Democrats who do see the economic consequences of this being very, very damaging.
9: Molly, does trade become an election issue in the midterms? It's possible. I mean, you saw the president campaigning yesterday in one of the states where it is a very big election issue, and I've spent a lot of time in. Uh, Central Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, where this is a big deal. And uh, I think that, you know, Trump's political advisors believe this was a key part of his political appeal in 2016, and the reason that he was able to flip those so-called blue wall states of the Rust Belt, the industrial Midwest, there is a powerful political appeal to this tariffs issue. Republican policymakers are, all, are pretty much uniformly set against it. Republican voters are not, mm-hmm. and Republican-leaning independent voters in states like Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin—the trade deal was in the Republican primary one of Trump's biggest differences with the other candidates in that field because he sensed, I think, correctly, as you know, Ross Perot did before him and Pat Buchanan, uh, that there is a constituency even among Republican voters uh, for tariffs. And Michael
4: president said last night, Ronald Reagan wasn't good on trade. Yeah. Ronald Reagan's an icon typically for Republicans. Yeah, he doesn't
12: respect icons in that in that way. Um, I think that this is revealing in an entirely different way. I mean, Republicans really have come together, 107 of them, to uh, resist the president's policy on this. Um, but when you look at all the previous provocations where they might be critical to the president, it's tariffs. It's not misogyny. It's not... Um, you know, nativism and racism, um, it reveals something about the Republican Party that this is their red line.
11: Yeah, don't so, mess with aluminum. Right, don't <laughs> mess with aluminum. exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, Gary
9: Cohn stayed in place after Charlottesville, but he quit over this. Yeah,
12: so I think it's revealing.
4: What do you think it reveals, that, that it's truly about uh, economic policy when it well, comes to the Republican Well,
12: Augustine, he talked about the order of the loves. This is their order of their loves. Um, this is what they <laughs> really value in life. Um, and I think that that's a, a serious problem for Republicans. They need to so, show some passion, I think, for recovery in the future on some other uh, issues that and resisting the Trump agenda.
4: Well, you, Susan, you've written a bit about the uh, as well in terms of flipping the script on, on the Republican agenda, the change towards Russia and how this has somehow become a partisan issue.
10: Well, that's right. It used to be uh, just as Republicans were the bedrock party of free trade, right? If there's one thing we knew that that was the consensus of the Republican Party on, it was free trade. I, the same thing was true on the hawkishness toward Russia, which generally had prevailed and persisted through the end of the Cold War. Now you look at those public opinion surveys, and basically because the party's standard bearer, Donald Trump, has changed his view. Uh, last year, in 2016, uh, the Republican electorate changed their view in an astonishingly short period of time. So this coming weekend, uh, Vladimir Putin will be up for his sort of token re-election. He's already the longest-serving Russian leader since Joseph Stalin. Uh, now he has the prospect of six more years. You have, by the way, today as we're having this conversation, it hasn't come up, but Xi Jinping will be uh, basically now rubber-stamped as a leader for life in China. They're eliminating term limits on their leadership today. These two incredibly significant geopolitical things are happening. In the context of an American presidency this week, we see more clearly than any other it's a presidency as a Someone in my household wrote a presidency of one, uh, and, I, you know, you see him shedding advisors. unclear uh, whether he's listening to the counsel of others. And I think that goes to the politics. The Republican Party doesn't really know what it stands for anymore under President Trump.
4: And you recently interviewed uh, Senator Jim Brish, who would take control of Senate Foreign Relations Committee, we believe, if, if Bob Corker right. does what he says he's going to do, and, and step down. And that leaves some oversight, uh, at least for foreign policy, somewhat unchecked in your description of your conversation with him.
10: Well, I think this underscores what we're talking about. You have basically a Republican Party that's deeply uncomfortable, at least on Capitol Hill, with many of the president's policy positions, whether it's his favorable comments toward Vladimir Putin, whether it's his jettisoning of the party's traditional free trade stance. And yet the political imperatives, they're afraid to directly challenge him. It's interesting that some of them are speaking out on trade. And I think that's what I came away with thinking the future chairman of the foreign relations Committee doesn't really agree with the president on many of these foreign policy issues. And yet his uh, articulated goal for the committee would be not to criticize and stand up to him the way that Bob Corker has. Michael,
4: I want to ask you, you just wrote an in-depth piece about sort of the the struggle within, as you see it, the search for the soul of the evangelical movement in in many ways. You say they've lost their interest in decency. What do you think the Evangelicals who support President Trump make of this Stormy Daniels
12: scandal? Well, I think that it is the, it's the height of hypocrisy. And we saw it with Roy Moore as well. Um, if any other Democratic president had been guilty of, of what uh, is alleged in these cases, um, Evangelicals would be, you know, off the reservation. Um, this is a case where their morality seems to be determined by their politics. And they've ceased to be moral leaders in that sense. You know, the, it's, it's, it was a tough choice for many evangelicals between Hillary Clinton and and the president. Um, and I understand that. But they have been the most sycophantic element of the Republican coalition, which was, is unnecessary. They have not provided that moral judgment um, that, uh, that I think leavens our politics or should leaven our politics. Um, and so uh, you know, I've done this piece in The Atlantic, as essentially arguing that they've, they're betraying a great tradition. Evangelicalism really has had a good tradition, and now they're, they're uh, really undermining that reputation of their faith.
4: But, for, for, but in that judgment, you're saying the transactional part of this relationship isn't worth the
12: trade-off? Well, they're acting like, um, you know, slimy political operatives, not moral leaders. They're essentially saying in order to get benefits, for themselves in a certain way. They talk about religious liberty and other issues. But to get benefits for themselves, they're willing to wink at Stormy Daniels and wink at misogyny and uh, and wink at nativism. Um, and that, I think, is deeply discrediting, not just in a political sense, mm-hmm. but actually in a moral and religious sense.
4: Molly, I think a lot of people don't really know what to make of this scandal. It seems sordid, but now we're talking about it sort of bleeding into questions about campaign finance and, and further legal issues for the president whose position has simply been none of this ever happened it's all made up.
9: Well and he can say that uh, but that doesn't make it go away and I do think that we've seen this scandal have surprising staying powder power because of the legal issues involved. If it were simply yet another woman uh, accusing Donald Trump of improper behavior, which she certainly is not the first, although in this case what's being alleged is a consensual extramarital affair, not, as in some other cases, uh, a form of harassment. Uh, In this case, though, uh, there is is this legal arbitration, this legal uh, contract between the president's lawyer and Stormy Daniels, which the White House acknowledged this week exists and is still uh, going through an arbitration process and then there is this campaign finance technicality although I think there's it's quite questionable whether that uh, would would actually be uh, assessed by a court but uh, you do have these issues where because the president through his lawyer allegedly uh, went to great lengths to try to silence the, the this story and, and cover up this alleged affair that this is not going to go away Shannon switching topics um, the White House is expected today to
4: announce some form of proposal when it comes to gun safety and school safety. Do you know what it is they're putting forward?
11: Uh, There's two things that, uh, well, appear that they have been consistent on. School safety, certainly additional resources for school safety, Uh, arming teachers. As controversial as it is, they have heard all the talking points for and against it. That is still um, an issue they are sticking with. And what we can expect not to be in there is any sort of Um, assault weapons ban, any sort of ban on AR-15s, anything uh, that the really, uh, the the pro-gun regulation camp would like to see. Um, So probably um, a little bit more than what the NRA would like, but certainly not as far as Democrats would like. And as we started the beginning of this conversation, it did seem like at one point the president was moving more towards the left on these issues. Um, Of course, there was that famous lunch with the NRA, and since then we've seen
9: a backwalking of a lot of this. Well, and I think this actually goes back to the tariffs issue, because what Republicans in Congress and and, and elsewhere are used to seeing Trump do is say something that goes against their longtime time policy uh, predilections, say, like, oh, we're going to take on the NRA, and then not do it. And so in policy terms, they've been comfortable that they could talk him down off the ledge of whatever non-conservative thing his instincts were heading him in the direction of. On tariffs, they thought they could do the same thing. president would promise all kinds of things and then they would be able to walk him back and I think we're still seeing that process play out where they still think that they can carve out enough exemptions to this announced tariff that the president doesn't actually do something that bothers conservatives.
11: Well and of course Republicans will have to say at the end of the day because it's up to Mitch McConnell to actually bring something to the floor and as even something as simple as bump stocks uh, once you put that on the floor it opens Pandora's box and a whole lot of amendments and other things can come out. And
4: we should acknowledge the Justice Department came forward showing that they actually are trying to move forward with that sort of executive action to to ban bump stocks. Uh, Susan, this announcement on North Korea seemed to overshadow everything else that happened uh, during what was already a uh, kind of rocky week with, with tariffs and Stormy Daniels, with all the rest. Is the president putting himself out on a limb by
10: doing this, or is it... a a strategic way of changing the topic. Well, strategic might not be the right word, but listen, this is, if you want to know what the Trump presidency is like and could be Even more like in the future. This week is an incredible example of that. I was going in over in my head before this conversation, all the things that happened. It was only at the beginning of this week, remember, that President Trump told us that there is no chaos in his White House, only great Mm -hmm. energy. Uh, And we thought that uh, the prospect of a trade war was going to be the dominant story. It hasn't gone away just because we're not talking about it as much. We thought that uh, the Stormy Daniels story would be uh, a dominant narrative. There's the Mueller investigation. There's the real question of what this internal disruption in the White House and the lack of senior staff is really going to mean going forward. In my view, this is, uh, you know, Trump seems very happy with where he's at, right? He seems like this is the White House that he wants. He doesn't want to be managed. He doesn't want to be constrained. He wants it to be all about him at all times. If he changes the subject, Mm -hmm. he wants us to run along right behind him. Mm -hmm. Um And we are right now. And we are. (laughs) That's it for us today. Thanks for watching. Until next
4: week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were CIA Director Mike Pompeo and Colorado Senator Cory Gardner. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday.
7: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News Business Analyst, Certified Financial Planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast
0: Why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining
3: Wondery Plus. Hey everybody, John Stewart here. I am here to tell you about my new podcast, The Weekly Show. It's going to be coming out every Thursday. So exciting. You'll you'll be saying to yourself, "TGIT." Thank God it's Thursday. We're going to be talking about all the things that hopefully obsess you in the same way that they obsess me. The election, economics, earnings calls. What are they talking about on these earnings calls? We're going to be talking about ingredient to bread ratio on sandwiches. And I know that I listed that fourth, but in importance it's probably second. I know you have a lot of options as far as podcasts go, but how many of them come out on Thursday? I mean, talk about innovative. Listen to the weekly show with John Stewart wherever you get your podcasts.